Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello! Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Got to talk some USC football, got some news to get to, unfortunate injuries for some of the Trojans. We want to talk about that, talk about the future of spring football. We had Coach Harvey Hyde on earlier in the week talking about he thinks it would go away. We're going to debate that with Dan Weber and Keely Yor, who are on the show with me today. I'll introduce them in a second. If you have any questions or comments, Podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address, or if you'd rather call or text us, the number is 424-254-9141. Please subscribe on any of the podcasting platforms, and if you happen to have an Apple device, we would love a five-star rating. Positive reviews are wonderful. Any kind of feedback is great. We're going to have Keely Yor read a couple of these reviews in a minute, but just letting you know, here's what we want. Say you don't like the show, and you do want to leave a review. Still give us five stars. That helps. Just do the five-star thing and then say, hey, you guys suck. But leave the five stars. That's the perfect kind of review. We love those. Those are funny. (laughs) But you still got to leave the five stars. We we go over this on the podcast of Champions. If you go over there, we had people give us five stars and say, it's a podcast. Uh, Stuff like that. That's fine. That's funny. Say whatever you want. You can have complaints. You can say, I don't like Keely, Dan, Ryan, Harvey Hyde, whatever it is. But still leave us the five stars. That's what helps. You leave like three stars. That's just not how this works, people. Please help us out. Give us the five stars. Now, that's not coming from me. This is coming from Keely. You are. You can follow on Twitter at Keely is my name. Hey, Keely. So so why are you? Why, what's, why is that your policy? What's going on here? <laughs> Once again, setting me up. No, I will say, though, because we did receive a review that said always a great listen, but then got three stars. But the way the algorithms work, if it's a great listen, just give us five stars and then hash out your details later. You know, it's a weird algorithm thing, but as long as you like it, five stars goes a long way. Three stars in the algorithm means like you hate it. It's awful. Never listen to it. So just help us out in that sense. You don't have to lie, but just maybe realize the rating is a little wonky that way. Yeah. So five stars are great. And then yeah, complain all you want, like right in there, put, put all, you know, you got paragraphs you can write about what you don't like about the show and we'll listen and we'll read it on there, but we need those five stars people. So please help us out. Uh, we'd appreciate that. We're all having fun, but you know, hopefully you guys enjoy it. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we appreciate that. And like I said, Keely will read a couple here in a minute. We also have Dan Weber on the line. Always give Dan five stars. Dan, how are you? <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, I hate those wonky alg- algorithms. I mean, there's nothing worse in life than to get get ruined by a wonky algorithm, man. That's, uh, that's how we're it. starting off the show today, people. Wonky <laughs> algorithms. This is what we do. Uh, you know, we're, we're just trying to have a good time because, you know, it's like, what, year three of the quarantine. We're just trying to get through this, hoping football is coming soon. Uh, we'll talk about all that, and uh, we got a little bit of news on when USC is going to get back uh, working out, too. Before we jump into all that, get our reviews, uh, I want to tell you about Trader Joe's. They've been a great sponsor for us over the past few years, and uh, they've been very helpful during this quarantine. I just love going. The shopping experience there at Trader Joe's are great. And before I go, I usually try to check out TraderJoe's.com, see something I might not have tried before, and try it out, because there's a lot of stuff there. Sometimes I walk through, you, know, you walk by stuff you don't even realize 
you would really like. And what caught my eye this week was this organic watermelon fruit spread. Uh, they put they put on some toast with I think some cream cheese uh, and the, and this fruit spread on there. So I guess watermelon is going to be the the big trend for the summer. Or at least it was until everything got shut down. So try the organic watermelon fruit spread. I'm going to pick that up. Hopefully I go to Trader Joe's later today and uh, and check that out. So make sure you guys do. And uh, we do appreciate Trader Joe's for all of uh, their help uh, here on the podcast. Uh, and Keely, maybe we'll start off with uh, you got a couple of those reviews. I wouldn't don't read the one star ones, man. Like we don't want that. But uh, <laughs> reward the five star people. Let's read a couple of those if you got them. Yeah, there's Alex who said, thanks for what you do. He gave us five stars, says, uh, it was always fun to listen to you guys. Please keep it up. Great team. Go Trojans. And then uh, some of you will recognize Sir Eric of Troy left us five stars and said, the Parastyle podcast should be required. Continuing education for all USC supporters to maintain their quote-unquote fan card in good standing. It's informative, interactive, and a weekly kinfolk discussion. I highly recommend that you subscribe and have your say at the family table, Sir Eric of Troy. So there you go. Nice. Whoa, Thank you. I like that. Wow. That's way to go, Eric. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Eric's a great, he's a great listen. Uh, he, he loves uh, listening to the show. Um, we do have a little bit of uh, uh, breaking news. If you, you've listened to us before, we've sort of been like, hey, when's USC going to announce uh, the return of athletes to campus and starting those offseason workouts? So the rest of the Pac 12. Outside of California, I think everyone else is back or just about to be uh, uh, June 15th, which was Monday. Today is Tuesday. We're recording this was the day the Pac-12 said those uh, workouts were allowed to happen and students could return to campus, do the testing and all that kind of stuff. Um, so right now for USC, we still haven't had an announcement of when that's going to happen, but we were able to confirm uh, that USC uh, has told players parents that there's going to be a big zoom meeting uh this evening and they're going to talk about you know that return to campus so what would the procedures and protocols be that they're going to set in place to allow the players to return and then they would be answering any questions that the players have so even though as we're recording this on tuesday by tomorrow guys maybe we have some more answers keely any thoughts on uh, this I, I thought we'd have at least an announcement by now we did address a list in the war room a little bit so if you want to go check that out uh by the way we got a two for one deal the two months for a dollar uh if you're not a vip member at uscfootball.com go right now it ends soon two months for a dollar and you can go back and read the war room what we wrote about that but keely any uh thoughts on it yeah i mean it sounds by all accounts that they're getting toward closer to the starting line um it sounds like based on the way that i was able to get some of the injury news as well that they're kind of doing a roundup and getting everyone together and, and getting a, a stock of where everyone is health-wise injury-wise um so yeah it looks like things are getting together a little odd that we haven't gotten any type of official like hey we're getting towards this date to do this but maybe they're trying to get all their ducks in a row before they announce anything but just wait and see yeah, the the word I'm hearing is uh, imminent, uh, and maybe almost a surprise that there hasn't been an announcement yet. I understand, for example, you know, a lot of things have to change. They've got to set up, you know, the social distancing for like the weight rooms, and uh, apparently uh, the weight room has been expanded to include the uh, underground. Uh, uh, AstroTurf football field so that the weight equipment is moved out, a, a, a bunch of it is moved out there so you can have proper distancing 
you know, between uh, athletes uh, doing the weightlifting. And, you know, that takes some doing. It takes some planning. It takes bringing in crews to get it done. And apparently USC has been doing all that. We're hearing that the athletic department is the leader in opening the campus up, which makes sense. They've got an awful lot of physical facilities to get open, and uh, they're the first ones that are going to need them. So I understand that's all been happening. So, you know, could we get an announcement, you know, later tonight, tomorrow morning? Nobody that I've talked to would be surprised if that didn't happen. And and USC will still be playing catch-up with, you know, people when we see the Washington and Colorado and both Arizonas and uh, the Oregons and, and Utah and all those people are out there, you know, going after it. And uh, some of those have brought, you know, brought their athletes in before uh, June 15th just for testing and, and just to get them settled in. But, you know, even if you, you say you say next Monday's the date, then you still got to test everybody and you got to put everybody through all the, the new, you know, protocols of how we're going to do things and all that. So you're kind of more, more than a week behind the rest of the PAC 12 and two weeks behind the SEC and Ohio state and people like that. So, uh, USC doesn't have any time to waste. Now, if you're in California, is it one of those things that you don't want to make a big announcement? You don't want to draw the attention of politicians who, who kind of, or frowning on, uh, you know, people opening up and all of that. I don't, I don't know. It's probably not a coincidence that the four schools that haven't been able to announce a reopening yet are the four California schools. So, you know, who knows? USC, you would think has a little more flex. I mean, being a private school, but then, you know, Stanford hasn't announced either. And you would think they might have a little more, uh, you know, flexibility in, in getting this done. But, uh, they got to be really, really close. I mean, you can't, there's just no time to waste at this point. And there was an awful lot of work to do. I mean, and the schools are doing different things that, like protocols. You bring the athletes back. How do you have them eat? You know, do you have to do the same kinds of social distancing in restaurants? I would think you do. And does that take some, you know, physical changes in uh, the Galen Dining Center, for example? Or are you going to do what Colorado is doing? And they, uh, let the athletes uh, call down to the dining center and then they send, uh, send them their food room service. Uh, I'm guessing room service probably not going to happen at USC, but uh, there's just a lot of stuff you got to figure out. And, uh, and just all the testing protocols and, and what, what kind of testing are you going to use and how long does that take to get the test back and, you know, the equipment that you need for that and the personnel. And there's just a whole lot of stuff, uh, uh, that has to happen, and there's just not much time to get that done. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. Uh, it looks like USC's creeping closer there. There's obviously some governmental issues that the California schools have to deal with, so it's probably why we haven't heard announcements from any of those programs. But I think now that the uh, the first day where you could actually have players come back has passed, we will start to see something uh, happen here pretty quickly. And, you know, in general, it seems like things are still rolling along. We're seeing some positive cases pop up different places, but um, it hasn't, you know, derailed everything at this point. Um, so we'll see, you know, what happens going forward. You know, keep an eye on the Pac-12. Uh, we'll we'll keep, you know, we'll keep doing that to kind of watch how things go. But every week we make a little bit more progress and have that potential to uh, 
uh, have the college football season in 2020 like we are all hoping. Um, one player that won't be participating this year, unfortunately, is uh, Kyle Ford. And uh, Keely, you actually broke uh, the news here if you want to give everyone an update on uh, the situation with uh, the former five-star wide receiver. Yeah, so I found out Friday that Kyle Ford unfortunately tore his ACL. And if that sounds familiar, it's because he actually tore his ACL in 2018, his senior season of high school, and basically missed most of half of USC's uh, season in 2019, his freshman year. But this ACL that he tore was his other knee. So now he has ACL surgeries on both knees. Um, and so he'll obviously be out for the uh, foreseeable future. Uh, he's already received surgery, so he's going to go through the rehab process. But it just it's really unfortunate, you know, for anyone, but especially Kyle Ford, who worked so hard to get back. He actually got playing time uh, on special teams. He made his collegiate debut against Colorado. He actually scored his first touchdown off of his first collegiate catch against Oregon. Um, so he was making his way back. I know his teammates were really excited for him. And then this uh, unfortunate news came of his uh, ACL injury. So definitely sad news for him there. And uh, we'll see what happens going forward because now I'm, I'm told that there's some questions about uh, if he's a little bit too bulky. Uh, maybe he needs to, to kind of scale down a little bit, maybe putting too much pressure on those knees. So something to watch for going forward. And then another thing I heard at the same time was Elijah Winston. Uh, he broke his ankle. Uh, apparently doing uh, workouts on his own. Uh, he tried to plant hard and just broke his ankle. So he'll be out for six to eight weeks. And he's also under, uh, he already went uh, surgery on that ankle. So uh, some bad injury news for USC. But uh, it, like I said, it sounds like they're trying to get stock of where everybody is. And that, those are two things that came up last week. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the problems with kids that, you know, you do get an ACL is in, in working your way back, you put a lot of pressure on the other ACL. And uh, as big and strong as Kyle is, uh, that's a good point that there may have to be a, a decision on what exactly uh, does his body type, you know, is he going to be, be more of a, you know, a hybrid H-back tight end kind of, uh, you know, maneuverable guy that, that you know, you want to be big and strong or, or whatever. I, I don't know. But uh, I know there were people I'm, I read one second guess of how does USC take a chance on a kid with, you know, ACL surgery in high school? And don't you realize blah, blah, some I won't even talk about who said said it, but just the dumbest possible uh, commentary, because I, I keep thinking I was in Cincinnati when the Bengals drafted uh, Anthony Munoz and who had had some significant uh, knee surgery. And, you know, why do you draft that guy number one? What's he, you know, well, he only went on to never miss a game in his entire, you know, NFL career and become maybe the best offensive lineman in history of the NFL. So, you know, to act like, oh, you know, somebody that's had one injury, you just know for sure that he's going to have another one or it's not going to be something that they can overcome. That's just not true, and uh, I, I don't think you know that's necessarily true with Kyle. But uh, I do think they may have to figure out what's the best way for him to utilize uh, you know his talent. I think the other thing with uh, with uh, uh, Elijah, but is the difficulty of doing this on your own. If you have you know the coaches and the and the rehab guys and the uh, conditioning people and all of that watching you they probably have more of an ability to keep you from maybe uh, planning too hard. 
and, 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 and making sure you're doing it exactly correctly. I mean, one of the problems with kids today is they're a lot stronger than they used to be. But there are parts of your body that you can't necessarily, you know, you can stri- strengthen the musculature. But that doesn't mean you can change uh, the amount of pressure that your bones or your tendons or even your ligaments, you know, can handle. And so uh, technique is really important. In, in workouts, and it's one of the reasons that I think a lot of people have made the case, and correctly so, that these players are more safe working out with the team on campus under the, uh, you know, the tutelage, let's say, of, uh, of experts who, who, you know, I think, and we can't absolutely say, oh, that's why that happened, but uh, I, I think it just makes the case that get back to campus as soon as possible and work out with experts who can oversee uh, the workouts. Yeah, I agree with you there, Dad. I think there's, you know, there's some definitely some benefits for these players coming back. Even though there's going to be more exposure, uh, I think it's probably a safer situation for them. Um, did talk to someone close to uh, Kyle Ford, and he was someone that I just, I really just fell in love watching him uh, at the opening uh, back in, I think it was 2018, where he caught like 15 touchdown passes over a weekend. Um, but the, you know, for my source close to Kyle said he was in really good spirits, uh, just another challenge for him to beat. And he feels like he can come back stronger. I know a question we got yesterday on the Harvey Hyde podcast was, is he someone that was injury prone? And he hasn't been, this was like the first thing that happened to him was that first knee injury. Uh, and then he got the other one. So, um, so he feels like that the knee that he had surgery on before is way stronger, uh, according to my source. Um, and so, you know, they, they, there was a graph in there and it's a lot stronger than what his original ACL was. And I think he's pretty optimistic that the same thing's going to happen. So I, I mean, I can't imagine rehabbing that long and then coming back and playing a little bit and then having to do it all over again, but it doesn't seem like his spirits are down at all. He seems very you know excited that he thinks this is going to be a blessing in disguise and, and come back stronger. So from the source I talked to. Uh, really good attitude uh, right now, which is great. And we'll see, you know, you're wishing him the best, but you know, great kid. Uh, just an unfortunate thing when you go, go through that one time and then you got to go through it all over again and only having to get to, you know, he caught that touchdown against Oregon. That was cool, but um, really didn't get to do much during the season. And now we'll see uh, probably, we won't see him now, I guess until 2021. Yeah, no, it's crazy, but I'm glad he's in good spirits because I can understand how frustrating and demoralizing that must be to to work your way back only to have to do it again on the opposite knee. So, of course, like you said, we wish him the best going forward. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it kind of, you know, USC's got a lot of talent there, but it, it, you know, if you want to say the glass is half full, it kind of spreads maybe that talent out a little bit, you know, so they're they're not all, you know, coming of age in the, you know, the same year. And so maybe uh, it works, you know, for the better that way. Uh, you got to try to find, okay, what's the good news here? And, and maybe that's uh, a little bit of it. Yeah, some good news there. All right, well, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and uh, answer your questions. I know we got a bunch. We got some, we got some critiques, Keely, I think, in there. So we'll play all of the, We'll talk about all those and uh, answer them to the best of our ability back in a minute. Third. 
want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie <laughs> dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions. If you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. All right, we're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Uh, Keely, what do we got here for for questions? Looks like uh, people are pretty active in the email box this week. Well, Ryan, we're forgetting just one one small player in Trojan history that we might want to talk about. Uh, Reggie Bush. Oh, we're going to do the Reggie Bush thing? Did we, yeah, maybe. Did we, oh, we, oh, so I talked about it uh, last week on Harvey Hyde's show because that happened after we recorded this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, good point. So we might as well, you know, since uh, we're here, we might as well talk about it because we have not, we haven't got your takes on it. Um, Keely, I mean, we'll start with you. Oh, man. No, let's go to Dan first. I already talked about the family feud. (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. I swear, uh, people, and I I try to remind people at USC that uh, having been a guy who grew up in SEC country and kind of knows the vibes and all of that, uh, as much as people there hated the whole Pete Carroll era. I think the thing that pushed him over the edge, and I I swear there was this consensus, it's time to take USC down. We've got to take them down. Came in the three of the first four years that I covered USC football, USC won Heisman trophies. I mean, that's, it's unheard of. I mean, nobody's ever done anything like that. And at that time, and people find this impossible to believe, Alabama had won something like 11 national championships and thought they basically had the best program in college football. They hadn't won a single Heisman Trophy. And here's USC winning three in four years. Honestly, they didn't take that well at all. And I do think one of the things, that, that, you know, it's going to be a while probably for the NCAA to come around because of the uh, the Todd McNair tri- retrial, and I'm hearing that thing is everything has stopped with the California Court of Appeals because of COVID-19 and all that, and so they may not come up, you know, with their decision on the NCA doesn't want Reggie to get a retrial, or uh, excuse me, Todd McNair to get a retrial. I'm hearing it could be months before that decision is made, and you know, Todd McNair and and that. Uh, decision could help redress some of the stuff that the NCAA did to USC. But I think the first thing that could happen easily is for the Heisman to give back uh, the trophy to Reggie. I mean, the Heisman didn't actually ask for it. Reggie gave it back after uh, uh, Pat uh, Hayden gave USC's copy of it back and kind of forced the issue with a really dumb, dumb move. Uh, you know, of course, obviously, that's all that USC did when Pat was in charge. But uh, I don't think it's much of a, 
of an ask for the Heisman to just give it back to Reggie, make a you know big deal out of it. The Heisman's going to look good. Everybody in the world now, every commentator uh, says Reggie ought to get it back. He earned it. He had, I, people. I don't know if the USC people realize he had the most one-sided Heisman victory in history until Joe Burrow last year. I think Reggie got 90, almost 92% of the vote, which is unheard of. So I, I think that's an easy thing to give it back to, you know, Reggie. He deserved it. He one of the great modern uh, era college football players ever. And um, what, what happened with Reggie and USC and the NCAA will be in the very near future, almost completely legal. And, and, you know, the NCA will be following in the path of whatever happened with Reggie um, as the way to go forward. And so get it over with right now, Heisman. Give it back and, uh, and let that be the first step to USC getting back some of the things that they lost in that, you know, lost decade uh, since 2010. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic on that front. I mean, we... We heard from Mike Bone on a Zoom call the day that Reggie was, you know, reinstated or the dis- disassociation ended and all that last week, and uh, they didn't have a plan for that. That was really not on their radar at this point. Reggie Bush said on Colin Coward show how much you know that would mean to him. So I, I think that the the desire is there to bring it back. Um, they got a lot of other problems to deal with right now. They're just trying to get you know the the players back on campus and all that. But uh, it's a good thing. For USC recruiting, we're still hearing about Reggie Bush from prospects. Now that he can actually be involved, I think that's going to be a big deal. And the next step would be going after uh, the Heisman Trust and trying to make sure that they would reinstate and give him his Heisman back. I think that would be the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think USC can do that while they do the other things. Obviously, COVID-19 and getting the athletes back and getting everything safe and all that is a big deal. But I I think... It would be well advised, USC's athletic administration and the university would be well advised to do whatever they could do, whether that's putting together the the group of past Heisman winners to, uh, you know, to come out publicly and and, uh, say that, you know, they'd like to see uh, Reggie get his uh, trophy back. Uh, I just think it, it really means a lot to USC fans. And I think football fans in general, I think it means a lot just to be fair. And, and Reggie, you know, earned it probably shouldn't have had to give it back. And uh, I, I just think it will do a lot of good. You know, it's a feel-good story. I think everybody will feel, you know, feel good. And give Reggie maybe a chance to kind of say, uh, you know, I wish it wouldn't have happened the way it did. And, you know, I just – it's hard for Reggie, I think, to, to go into too many details <clears throat> because I don't think he was in the forefront of how that all happened. And it what happened with Reggie – only ha- he, you know, didn't probably learn about a lot of that until it was too late um, to do anything about it. And, uh, and and he was in a very difficult position, I think. So so I think, you know, getting this thing going, I think really matters to people. And, and to have a big day when Reggie is, um, you know, brought back officially, his Heisman is brought back officially. And it's, it's kind of a neat thing for USC, because when you get to the seventh Heisman, that you know, nobody's got more than seven. Notre Dame has seven, Ohio State has seven, Oklahoma has seven, and USC probably ought to be in that club with uh, with seven Heismans too. So I think for the USC fan base, that'll mean a lot uh, to see that that all happen. So I, I, I think um, 
Mike Bowen and Brandon Sosna be well advised to to really uh, you know get that thing going as as much as they can do uh, to make that happen. What do you think, Keely? Well, we actually have a question in regards to that. Oh. So I just jump in. Yeah, yeah. Wherever, so have, however you like to go. Yeah, well, the one thing I will add is I thought it was really interesting. You could hear from Mike Bone on his multiple appearances that they're really going to try and use Reggie Bush. And it sounds like Reggie wants to be this as well as be a mentor to the student athletes at USC. And it seems like he has a wealth of knowledge of how to navigate the ends, of, ends and outs of being a college football player, a college student athlete. And the name image likeness coming down the pipeline, they alluded to that, but how valuable will Reggie, Reggie be in navigating those types of issues and, and how to be, uh, have one foot in the endorsement uh, sphere and one foot in the college uh, athlete sphere. So I think that was really important. And I thought it was smart for Mike Bone to brand the whole Reggie Bush thing as a student athlete issue, basically saying that Reggie's is now reinstated as a student athlete. And I care about every student athlete the same way and so I'm going to fight on his behalf so I thought that was really smart because that not only signals to the current USC student athletes what he'll do as an athletic director but also to future prospective student athletes of this is what will happen if you come into the quote-unquote Trojan family we'll fight for you and, and we'll do what you want because I thought it was interesting Mike Bones said if it's important to Reggie it's important to us and I feel like that's right. something that we wouldn't really hear an athletic director say prior obviously they couldn't have but we wouldn't hear that type of sentiment out of an athletic director prior to uh, Mike Bone. So I thought that were, were good points that Mike Bone made in his uh, uh, little uh, interviews. And that's a great point by you, Keely. I, I do think that shows the, the difference in the way, you know, things have turned around on US, at USC. I also think it's interesting how Reggie Bush has remained that kind of recruiting icon that Kids, honestly, they were in kindergarten when Reggie was playing, who still talk about Reggie and cite Reggie. And I thought that was one of the main worries about uh, from Paul D., who was then the AD at Miami and never should have been allowed to be the uh, Committee on Infractions chairman. And all he cared about was USC getting more, more scholarships taken away than Miami had for legitimate reasons. And he worried that... Uh, uh, Reggie Bush would be able to be somebody who would come back and really be uh, uh, somebody that would help USC in recruiting. And Paul D has is departed now, but Reggie Bush hasn't. And Reggie Bush has turned around, and he's still a factor uh, as a plus for USC. And the other thing that's happened, and I've talked to some people who watch the NCAA very closely, and in the 10 years since the day that that penalty was was uh, in, you know, four years before that, the NCAA started pursuing USC. In that time, and certainly starting with the 2010 rendering of uh, the sanctions against USC, the NCAA now has no credibility and almost no ability to do uh, enforcement uh, in any way. Nobody trusts them, nobody believes them, and that the sanctions against USC and I think we should take credit, Ryan, and a lot of, you know, the uscfootball.com, everybody. Um, I think over the years, I think we've been in the forefront of pushing the NCAA, uh, the case against the NCAA from day one. And we've been proven right. And, uh, you know, we've survived. And the NCAA hasn't almost uh, in terms of their ability to be uh, an enforcement agency. Nobody trusts them. Nobody believes them. 
uh, I mean, they're kind of a joke. And uh, so what they tried to do to USC, they actually did to themselves. And, uh, and, and, and good riddance for, for the NCAA's ability uh, to be that kind of impartial uh, investigator and judge and, and jury. Uh, they can't do that anymore. And they did it to themselves. The Reggie Bush case, the Todd McNair case, the USC case, uh, you know, proved that uh, you can't trust the NCAA. And now nobody does. Yeah, I was, I, it was funny because you're thinking about that back in the day. You were writing those missteps on McNair. We put a lot of information out there and it really wasn't received all that well. And now everyone kind of agrees with everything we said. So it took a while for like the national media to sort of figure out like, well, yeah, they really. And, I, you know, the big thing is obviously when you look at a Cam Newton situation, did, did the school benefit by Cam Newton's family getting paid? Yes, because they got him and they won a national championship. USC in no way benefited from anything that Reggie Bush's family got while he was at USC. This wasn't something that brought him to USC. And that's one of those things where USC just has this advantage. They're the only big dog on the West Coast. So they're the ones that recruit all the five-star players. If you put USC in the SEC you know, foothold, in the footprint, yeah, they're going to be competing with Alabama and LSU and all that. They don't have that on the West Coast. So it's not as difficult to get the best players in Southern California to go to USC, where you might have to fight tooth and nail to get those players in, in the SEC country. So it's just a different situation. But the big thing was USC didn't benefit at all from this. So that's why, as harsh as that was, it just didn't make any sense. And, and like Dan said, we were on this from the very beginning. Uh, and then you know, it took a while for the national media to kind of catch up and realize, yeah, those guys were right. Yeah, I think uh, from the beginning, Jay Billis, give him all the credit in the world. He saw through it. Uh, and uh, Kirk Herbstreet, I think, were the two originally that uh, said, this is wrong. This is just ridiculous and, and all of that. And it did take some time to work on the rest of, rest of them. But I can't think of a single person who covers college football that doesn't think USC really, really got screwed badly and that the NCA acted badly in this case. And you're right. At that time, the NCA was doing things like bringing all the media in for summer where they would give them a mock uh, uh, infractions case and and they'd go through, you know, with Joe Petuto and people like that, showing them how they do things and, uh, and trying to win people over. And the more they did that, the more people said, wait a minute, this is not right. And literally, I, I think... I don't think there's a single person that's written a favorable piece about the NCA uh, and infraction, uh, you know, enforcement and infractions and all of that in years. I mean, they've, you know, they did it to themselves and they deserve it. Yeah. Uh, our, qu- sorry, oh, sorry, can I just jump in? The question yeah, yeah, I posed on the Family Feud podcast that I actually want to hear your guys' opinion because you were around more so than we were at the time. I. It stuck out to me that, and I've heard this from people who know Reggie Bush as well, Mike Bone alluded to the fact that the mental toll it took on Reggie when the sanctions came down, how players he never even played with in the Lane Kiffin era were being punished for something that he that he did. Uh, it almost, to me, feels like Reggie Bush was kind of the first modern super college star, and he kind of took the, the mental toll and the brunt of the college football world kind of being like, the horror, something's happening that's not like, that's a like interrupting the sanctity of college football. And so he kind of had that whole brunt. And I feel like now in this day and age of, of social media, there's kind of unwritten social cues of like 
don't tweet at recruits and don't harass kids who are 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds. I mean, do you think if this happened to Reggie Bush in this day and age, he would have had to like shoulder as much as he did back in the day? Because Reggie said, I think on one of the shows he went on that the mental toll it took on him affected him at the Saints and affected his his pro career. So, I mean, how do you, how different do you think would have think how different do you think things would have been? if it happened today versus back in the day when it was a little bit more rare and people believed in the NCAA more than they do now. Yeah, I think there were, there were a lot of things that had to weigh on Reggie. For example, 30 kids didn't get USC scholarships who would have gotten scholarships. And basically, and people can say, well, those kids that couldn't get into USC would get scholarships elsewhere. But there's a finite number of Division I football scholarships and if you push those numbers down, eventually you get to the bottom of the list and 30 kids didn't probably get uh, Division I football scholarships as a result of the USC decision. That's terrible. And you can say, you know, people were blaming Reggie. Um, uh, and if you've got a situation where maybe your parents or your one parent anyway were doing things that you didn't realize they were doing, and then all of a sudden you realize they're doing it. What situation, what does that put, what kind of toll does that take on you? Uh, I mean, I, I, over, I was listening, I think the day that USC got the Rose Bowl bid for the uh, Texas game. And I remember the day before they played UCLA, I guess it was. And there were, you know, Bush family people being interviewed on television and Bush jerseys and coming down onto the field. And Reggie was beyond unhappy that they were doing that. He didn't want it. He didn't like it. He didn't approve of it. And he got this person and his family and uh, and just completely reamed him. That would have been difficult if you were Reggie to know that people were doing things that you didn't exactly have control of, but you were going to get the blame for. Uh, that was really, really a difficult, difficult thing. And um, uh, I could see how it would take a toll without a doubt on Reggie. Yeah, that, that was a hard part to listen to Reggie talk about that. Um, it, you know, it's definitely something that's weighed on him. So I, I think USC embracing him with open arms. I think this is going to be very therapeutic for everyone. And hopefully, you know, walk, it takes us towards a healing place where things can kind of get back to normal and, uh, you don't have to like, you know, hope Reggie Bush isn't in the background of a photo that you're taking on the Coliseum floor. We just stuff like that was just absolutely ridiculous. So glad that's behind us. We'll see if uh, the, the Heisman comes back. That would be a great next step, like Dan said. Well, we have a, a question from Dan, class of 1962. It's our last, like, Reggie Bush section, and then we'll move on. He says, hi, Dan, Keeley, and Ryan. Thank you to President Folt and Athletic Director Bone for bringing Reggie Bush back into the Trojan family where he should have been all along. Now they need to push for the restoration of our Trojan legacy of the BCS championship in 2004, Reggie's Heisman Trophy, and the complete win-loss record during Coach Carroll's time at USC. Whether Reggie or his family received any be benefits as he was getting ready to leave the NFL did not affect USC in the least. Improper benefits are given to encourage a recruit to come to university or remain at the university, neither of which was true for Reggie. He was leaving the team after his junior year regardless of the benefit. Should the family have waited? Of course, but that is immaterial to the intent of the regulation. Paul D. was corrupt, and the NCAA should have been sanctioned for having him lead the committee on investigations. That's like asking a bank robber to secure the bank. 
And would someone please tell me what Coach Carroll did that was wrong? He was a spokesperson for the football program and the university, period. Your thoughts? Fight on and win, Dan, class of 1962, and proud to be a lifelong Trojan. Always, uh, you know, pleasure to hear Dan's questions and always on the money. I think the hardest part of that is the fact that uh, the BCS is no longer in existence. I mean, it, it, you almost don't know who would you go to to get them to restore it because uh, they, they, don't, they don't live here anymore. They're gone. And uh, that organization you know, it's disbanded. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it no longer exists. I don't, I mean, you know, the same executive director for the BCS and the college football playoffs, uh, you know, it, you have the same director, whether he would have enough power to somehow do a poll or if the NCAA, I think, you know, a lot of this might be up to the NCAA. They need to restore the victories. They need to get rid of the asterisks and the, uh, the media guide. I mean, that's just that's just silly. Is um, if the, for example, USC isn't allowed to count those as wins, but the other team has to count them as losses. From what I understand, that's goofy. I mean, it's like, yeah, those games happen. Everybody saw them. What Reggie Bush's parents' deal was had no uh, impact or effect on those games. Uh, maybe the NCAA will feel like, hey, we got to. You know, if the Heisman goes ahead and does it, maybe the NCAA will also say, you know what, we've taken another look at it. Yeah, the, the idea that they allowed Paul D. to be the chairman of the Committee on Infractions is so beyond corrupt. And uh, uh, I, I said that he turned the COI from Committee on Infractions to uh, conflict of interest. I mean, all he cared about was how much could he penalize USC to say, see, we weren't the worst uh, program at all time in, at Miami. Well, obviously they were. Everybody, you know, we're not counting SMU. But, uh, uh, you know, there are so many things done wrong that maybe, you know, someday the NCAA comes in and, and gets it all right. And if that happens, maybe there's a way for the uh, BCS, however they are constituted now, to just say, you know, here's your trophy back, USC. Uh, you deserved it. I don't know. I think that's the hardest part of, of making what, what Dan wants to happen happen is the whole BCS deal. And the one thing people need to realize is that they still have the Associated Press National Championship trophy there. there that wasn't taken away. So, they, I mean, there's no real champion. That's that mythical national championship anyway. But USC still has the, uh, the pair of AP trophies there. So uh, it, it makes the point that the – uh, BCS trophy was kind of worthless that year because that was that you know who was it LSU they weren't the best team or th there is no one for 2000 USC didn't even get in in 2003 and the and you know they got the AP trophy and um, uh, whoever there's nobody even you could give it to in 2004 so obviously USC was a national champion they ought to just make it official uh, it was, it's just embarrassing. Uh, for everybody that had anything to do with college football to still, uh, you know, act like USC w was not the national champion that year. Yeah. We have a question from Paul from Gator Country who says, Hey, Ryan and team, after listening for three years to your podcast, I finally bit the bullet and joined the club. I assume he subscribed to the site. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks, Paul. He says, your podcast and programs have got me through COVID-19. That 
and also wine from Trader Joe's. I really enjoy your interviews with former and future prospective players for sure. To my question, I was wondering, do you think, wondering if you think USC has any holes in their program for 2020? Are there positions you feel are the weakest? P.S. I plan on going to the Alabama game, and I hope you have a meetup event. Paul from Gator Country. Hey, that's great, Paul. It does sound like, you know, the, the Texas governor who has, has been a USC parent, uh, uh, Greg Abbott, is going to allow 50% uh, attendance in, in, in Texas. And uh, whether that means 40, uh, 40-some thousand of the 80-some thousand seats or whether that means 50-some thousand of the uh, – uh, and I guess they, they probably had well over 100,000 counting – They've got so much standing room. So it does sound like, you know, that game will have a, a pretty decent crowd, actually. Um, so that that's kind of a good thing. So we, you know, we, we do hope we uh, we do hope we see you there. I think a lot of how that game turns out is uh, what happens on the USC offensive line. Does the, just the fact that they're going to practice seriously, that the defense is going to come after them, that there's going to be full speed contact that it's going to be physical. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's not a lot of depth there. There's maybe enough talent. We're not, is there enough athleticism? It was hard always to tell because, you know, they didn't do stuff very athletically in practice. And then, you know, in games they could stalemate the, the mediocre teams. And then they tended to get run over by the, you know, real athletic teams that played fast. How does that change? I don't know. If they have a, a really good offensive line that can block the run, if they can run the football, uh, you know, things are really going to change. Uh, I was just thinking about the, the, the differences that have to happen. Um, in setting up, the, we have the series going of the best USC football team of all time. We've got the 1972 team uh, against the 2004 team. I thought it was interesting. In the 1972 team, how sound they were on defense. Again, they didn't allow a run. In 12 games, they didn't allow a run longer than 29 yards against them. They had 28 pass interceptions. That's unbelievable. The uh, 2004 USC team was number one in the nation uh, against, the, uh, uh, against the run, and they were number one in the nation in turnover margin. And they were like number two or number three in total or total defense. And those are the ways you win football games. Now, it's going to require, you know, some serious improvement there uh, for USC to be that, you know, team that can say, yeah, we belong, you know, with the, the top guys. But uh, I don't think they're completely talentless in those areas. How the offensive line develops, though, I think that's the one place. If that offensive line develops to become the kind of offensive line that, you know, USC, you go back and look through the years from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, those offensive line, they had guys that they could really, you know, physically uh, take people out of the game. And uh, that hasn't been the case uh, until, you know, when Pete got here. And it's amazing. I think, what was I doing? A, one of the takes uh, on the 2004 team, with a really good offensive line was that freshmen sitting there and not really playing were guys uh, like uh, Sam Baker, who would become a three-time All-American, only the second three-time first-team All-American for USC, and Ryan Khalil, 
guys like that, they were in the pipeline. You know, year after year, you just saw offensive linemen that could really play. We haven't seen that. Uh, it's kind of gone away. There still may be a nucleus of enough guys to be okay, but we, we'll see. I don't know, Ryan. What do you think? Do you think there's enough there on the offensive line or not? I mean, I, the offense, I think, makes it – it's a quarterback-friendly offense, and I think they can really – mask some of the holes on the offensive line, but it's going to limit things. It would be more of a Keaton Slovis show throwing the football than being able to run the football as much. I do think that's, you know, you identified the probably the weakest point there. Um, curious to see what happens. I think defensively, there's plenty of talent all over the place. It's going to be a new scheme. Um, I don't see a whole lot of holes on this team. That's why you can be pretty optimistic. But if things started to unravel, I think it would definitely start uh, with the offensive line. So, um, I like Elijah Vera Tucker a lot. You move him out of position. I know Tim Drevno, when I talked to him, seemed pretty confident that he was going to be able to play well out there and they got enough guys, but you know, it's like, it's one of those things where that starting five or six, like probably pretty solid, you know, we think, but an injury or two could really derail things. And I, I just don't think they've developed these players well enough. I mean, they've got, you know, Chuma Doba gets drafted, but he was a five-star coming in, you know, Austin Jackson gets drafted, but he was a five-star coming in and, um, you know, you could argue they, they should have performed better during their college careers, but still both were pretty high draft picks, you know, Adoga in the third and Jackson in the middle of the first. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a big concern for me still, Dan, but I think this offensive scheme can kind of mask some of those holes. Uh, we'll just have to see how it turns out. Yeah. I think that the difference that the difference maker will be, can they run the football when they have to, and can they do it against really good teams? Uh, and, you know, it was obvious they couldn't do it against an Iowa. Uh, they just, you know, they're just not up to uh, up to par physically. Will the second year in um, Aaron Osmus' weight program matter? I mean, I get the sense that they feel like it takes that into that second year for uh, for it to really impact. Uh, you know, we uh, we keep hearing things that. You know that they're going to be a lot stronger and a lot, you know, quicker and all these other things. But uh, uh, you know, we'll see in practice. And uh, and the good thing about playing Alabama in the first game is you'll find out right away whether that's true. And uh, you know, it's a, I think that's a great goal. It's why that game, you know, really matters for USC. Uh, do they belong there? And not, you know, not the guys that came out of the tunnel in 2016. You know, looking like they were some, you know, scene from Cats or whatever. I mean, that that was just so embarrassing. But come out, you know, and, and, and line up with Alabama and knock them off the line of scrimmage and see what you can do uh, to set up the pass game. Uh, you know, LSU was able to do it. Um, you know, and people say, well, they're not LSU. Well, yeah, they ought to be. I mean, this is USC, you know. And uh, so I'm really, you know, very much looking forward to that because you're going to learn a lot about USC, um, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the Alabama game. Yeah. I would say one a is offensive line. Like you guys said, I think I keep coming back to spring was really important for that position group. And I think you needed that time to establish chemistry and know who your, your starting five is. And I'm not really confident in the two deep. 
as far as that. And like slightly related, my one B is quarterback depth. And Dan, this is kind of a bad joke, but Dan, you said USC's offensive line used to take people out of the game. Well, USC's offensive line yeah. took the quarterback. All three, three of them, actually. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> no, I think we counted there were five times where USC lost its quarterback in 2018 to, uh, at least for a little bit, to an injury. So the fact that JT Daniels is no longer there, you have two scholarship quarterbacks on the on the depth chart. That's also a concern given that those injuries happened with a s- more established offensive line last year than will be this year. So to me, those two are related, but my concerns there. So. Good point. I'm, yeah, I'm glad they got the walk-on kid uh, from Vanderbilt. I mean, I, I do think, uh, you know, he, he's, he's got enough talent, enough physical talent. And uh, uh, you, you like the fact that, I mean, you don't want to ever even have to think about who the next guy in line is. But, um, you know, you, you're probably recent history, as you say, Keely, tells us maybe you, you, you better be able to bring that guy in every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a question from Dizzy in Utah who says, Keely, Dan and Ryan, what are each of your no doubt bet the house on it upside and downside locks for this coming season? And then he lists his picks. Uh, he says upside special teams will be better downside. There will be there will be annoying number of false start penalties this season. So that's his picks. Ah, so upside downside locks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you, I think he hit a good one with the special teams. I, I think that's like completely no brainer. Uh, that just in general, there'll be a whole different attitude about special teams and substitutions and getting the right guys on the field and not necessarily having to always switch jerseys. And, you know, that was, it was a comedy of errors. I thought, you know, from obviously uh, the get go last year in game one, but uh, as far as uh, going the other direction, man, that's a good one. I don't see the uh, false starts. I think, Practicing at full speed at game tempo changes that. Having a defense coming after you, and apparently, you know, they talk about we've got 10 blitzing positions on this defense. Uh, so you're going to have to be ready to handle that kind of thing. I think, I think practice will go pretty well that way. I, I, I really do have a, have a sense of they'll know what they're doing and they'll have, you know, they, they won't be like, uh-oh, this is completely different. It's game day than practice days. I think I think it, it moves that, that direction. You know, you, the thing you hope that they, they change and you, you're not sure is how few times they were able to turn the ball over last year and, uh, and take it away. The takeaways, uh, I'm not going to guarantee that that's not – but that's uh, – that's just got to be a whole different attitude. And I, and I know they're talking that and they're going to do a lot about it, but uh, that would be the thing that would worry me. The inability to to get those takeaways, get those short fields and get those easy scores that made, for example, Pete, uh, Pete, Pete, Pete Carroll's teams so tough to beat because, you know, they, they had enough offensive firepower, but they got a lot of cheap touchdowns because they, they took the ball away from from you and they didn't have to go the whole field. And uh, I, I'd like to see them do that. So that would be, I don't know if it's a slam dunk bad news thing, but uh, that's something that's got to be better. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do 
I, I, I'm going to get more specific on special teams. I'm going to go here, Keely. I know people are going to get mad. Okay. Ben Griffith's going to blow up. He's going <laughs> to be so much better without his previous coach holding him back. He's going to be hammering the ball. Okay. We're going to go there. Uh, I also am going to say <laughs> you're going to see much more production out of the linebacker spot. The linebackers, I think, are going to play better. Or Orlando's a linebacker guy. I felt like it was a forgotten position for whatever reason in Pendergast's system. And it just didn't seem to – they had two coaches there. It just didn't seem to get much out of those guys. The talent is there. I think you're going to see a high level of production. And on the uh, the downside, and this is kind of to Keeley's point about because there's lack of quarterback depth, I guarantee you Matt Fink's going to be playing a bunch this season. So I think there's guys going to get banged up coming out for a quarter or whatever. Like there's going to be some injuries there. And I think you're going to see both uh, of those guys play. And, you know, you don't want to see, I have to see a walk-on come in and play, but you might have to see that as well. But I, I feel like you're going to see, it, it's not going to be easy for Keaton Slovis to keep his jersey clean and play the entire season. Uh, I just, I think that's going to be really tough for him to do. Yeah, and, and that comes back to the offensive line. And uh, one of the things I think is a good thing, and we saw it in the uh, Utah game, I don't think they were really ready. Matt Fink does things differently. And he's a different kind of athlete. And, uh, you know, the Vanderbilt kid whose name escapes me, unfortunately, uh, is a really good athlete. And uh, so I think USC might have the ability, if the offensive line is athletic enough, to take advantage of teams are going to have to obviously get ready to defend the pass when they play USC. USC might have the ability if they have to go a different direction to attack uh, differently, but they've got to, you know, they've got a really game plan for that. They've got to have that, you know, scenario where here's how we're going to go, uh, you know, when Matt Fink is in the game or whatever. The fact that he's been around as long as he has and he's got the athletic ability that he's got and he's a really good leader. I think it gives them the option to go to more of an option look. And um, I think it's hard for teams to get ready to play, a, you know, the air raid and then the option. Obviously, USC has to be you know, ready to carry that out. But you would hope that going into the season, that's how they approach things, that, you know, we're going to go in a different direction if, uh, if, we're, if Keaton isn't in there. But, uh, you know, I think they'll have a chance to do that. Uh, we'll see how well they do it. Yeah. Dan, what about you, Keaton? Mo Hassan, Dan. That's the Mo name. Hassan. Right. When you look at his his film, he's he is a very good athlete. Uh, you know, he had some injury issues last year uh, at Vanderbilt, but uh, I like uh, I just like what I see of and you know having a uh, as a senior graduate transfer whatever. That's that's never a bad thing either. So, uh, so I think that was a a good break for USC to get him, uh, you know, to walk on. Okay, my upside, I'm going to say that Amon Ross St. Brown leads USC in receiving yards, especially if they push him outside, which sounds like they want to do. And then downside, I still think that USC's running backs will not be completely healthy throughout the season. For some reason, I still think there's going to be injury issues there. So those are my upside downside. That's a good one. I think the health of the running backs. I think that's a really good point. I think the other part of that with Amon Ra is I think they went back and kind of took a look at how this season went, and they realized he was an unbelievable deep receiver. He just didn't get to do it all that much. But uh, 
he was as effective, you know, a deep receiver as almost you saw anywhere in the country. So I do think he's going to get those shots, uh, and uh, he deserves it. I mean, he, he, he made a lot of deep plays last year, considering he didn't get to do that many of them. But uh, good good ca- call on the running backs. I, I think that's all to be determined how how those guys come back and how, how ready they are. Mm-hmm. Way to go on a limb, Keely. Amon Ross St. <laughs> Brown is going to lead the team in receiving yards. Whoa. Hey, I, okay, whatever. But I will say, Ryan, learn from Dan and I. We were singing Ben Griffith's phrases. And I then, know. <laughs> you're bold. That, that's all I got to say. That's why I'm doing it. Yeah, it's like I'm going to go completely. I'm going to show you, like, yes, there's a reason why that you guys, what he saw, what you guys saw in practice and what happened on the, the field didn't happen is because that's on the coaching side, in my opinion. So now, Different coach, better coach, better results is what I'm going to say. You're defending our honor. That's what's happening. Yeah. (laughs) And I think, um, you know, on special teams, I don't think they'll be coaching out of fear with the idea that, oh, my God, if he kicks it 60 yards, we won't have anybody anywhere near, uh, you know, covering it, which was probably true. Uh, But uh, I think you just say, okay, now we got a guy who can kick it like that. How do we cover it? And, And what do we have to do? And just more of a kind of a professional uh, approach to things, well, you know, a can-do uh, attitude instead of, oh my gosh, yeah, this guy can kick it like that, but we don't want him to because, you know, we won't cover it or we'll have breakdowns or, or whatever. And this way, we're nice and safe kicking it 38 yards. Um, and then USC, I mean, did they ever flip the field at all last year? I mean, come on, flip the yeah. field is like some concept that's totally foreign to, uh, you know, the USC punting game. And, and I just think, I think you got to be able to do that. And that, that was taken away from USC. So yeah, I'll go along with uh, Ryan's call there. I think that's a good one. <laughs> we have a question from our buddy, Stephen Poway, who says, dear Dan Keeley and Ryan, as you know, recruiting offensive linemen was a huge priority this past recruiting cycle. And while that recruiting class has been widely criticized overall, both on this podcast and elsewhere, there were five three-star players and one four-star player taken. Looking at the roster, it seems likely to me that at least two of these players are likely to see some playing time this fall. Of the group of six players recruited in 2020, which two do you believe are most likely to receive the most playing time this fall? Of the three stars, there's Cortland Ford, Andres DeWork, Caden Steven, Casey Collier, and on, uh, on Andrew Millick. And then there's the four-star, Jonah Monheim. Thanks, Steve and Poway. Well, I mean... I think Monheim. None. Yeah. I think Monheim of that group, you know, who, you know, I think there is a reason he's the four star. Uh, I do think offensive linemen need to play, uh, need to, you know, develop over the years, and uh, you would hope none of them really have to play next year. It is, you just have to hope that that's the case. Uh, I know Alabama every once in a while. I think you know, 2016, Alabama started a freshman offensive tackle from um, California. What was that kid's name? He just graduated uh, uh, from Clovis, as I recall. And he could play. I mean, you just wish, I think he had a connection to Alabama and they recruited him. But you, you watched him and said, man, there's a freshman you would have loved to see, uh, you know, playing at USC. Uh, but uh, you don't see that very often that those kids, even as backups, uh, you know, get that much opportunity. So, uh, one would hope that they take their time and develop, and with with the numbers that they have, 
that they get a couple of those kids that over time, you know, grow into their fairly big frames. They got, you know, nice frames on them. And you find out which of those kids can play. Hardest thing about looking at offensive linemen coming out of high school is it's so hard to um, understand the player, the teams they're competing against. And so you watch that film and you, you, you so often don't know how good or bad, uh, you know, the people they're, they're blocking are. And so you don't always get a chance to really, when you're getting down into the, like the, all those three stars, you just really, you know, you're kind of throwing darts a little bit. And, um, you know, the hope is you get enough of them that, and you develop them well enough that, that they do, uh, you know, come around and play. But USC probably really needs to figure out how to get back to recruiting, you know, the five stars, the Sewell kid uh, at Oregon and, and, and players like that. Uh, I mean, I still, I tell people this, was I saying, I guess we were waiting like they keep the media out of the locker room. And I guess it was after the um, boom, 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 UCLA game maybe last year. And I was looking at, at like all the, you know, the prospects and their parents are standing uh, and they get to go in before we do. Well, we don't even get to go in the locker room. They do. And I, I saw this guy in a USC jacket, letter, uh, letterman jacket, old USC letterman's jacket and realized, wait a minute, that's Ron Yeri. Wait a minute. He's like 75 years old or however old he is. He was the most intimidating looking athletic specimen for an offensive lineman, including the current players. He just had a look and you thought that's what USC football looked like. It looked like Ron Yeri, who still looks like that. And USC's got to get back to that. They got to figure out ways to get those Anthony Munoz and Brad Buddies and, you know, Ryan Khalil's and Sam Baker's and all those guys one after another. You got to, you got to do that. And uh, hopefully that's the next thing that happens for USC football is the ability to recruit not just, you know, a bunch of three stars, but uh, a bunch of four and five stars who want to come to USC because it's a place where offensive linemen, you know, get developed. Yeah. Our next, our next question comes from Curtis from Marina Valley, who has a bone to pick with you, Dan. <laughs> in response to your response to his question from last week's pod, uh, he says, He Dan likes having to- full-on conversations with the, you know, he leaves a voicemail <laughs> to respond to the voicemail that he wrote before that we answered, but then he has to respond to that. Yeah, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. We have these conversations with Curtis over, over the podcast. It's funny. It's true. Well, we're about to continue it because he says, Dan Weber's only reply to the fact that Helton has won more games in his first two seasons than un- any other USC coach in school history was, this is a case where stats are misleading. Really? Where I come from, a win is a win, no excuses. I guess many would be shocked to see him win a Pac-12 and Rose Bowl championship this year. It would be his second time for both, mind you. Curtis from Marina Valley. Well, I mean, there is a difference. I mean, you know, regular seasons used to be 10 and 11 games, and now they're 12. And if you do it right in the Pac-12, you get to play in the uh, you know, the championship game, which USC, I guess, has done a couple of times with, with Clay. So Clay's gotten to play coach in more games. So you ought to be able to win, you know, if you're talking about stats and if you're comparing a coach who, who got to play 13 or 12, 13 games in the regular season against coaches who only got to coach in 10 or 11 games in the regular season, 
the guy who got the coach in 12 and 13 game seasons has an advantage statistically, numerically. It's just, there it is. I mean, it's not, I'm not, you know, arguing whether that's right or wrong or, or good or bad or whatever. I'm just saying it's much easier to win more games in your first two years now than it would have been in the 60s, you know, for John McKay or uh, even, you know, the 2000s for Pete Carroll. Uh, it's you know you didn't get a you know chance to go to a Pac-12 championship game or anything like that. So it's just a different world a little bit. So that I don't know that that stat about Clay tells you that much that you know he won more games in his first two years. It's just apples and oranges. We're we're in like year five or six now, right? Like what is this? You know, this team is thirteen and thirteen in the last twenty-six games. Like. Look at Pete Carroll's resume. Try to find a stretch where he went 13 and 13. Uh, go to John McKay's, you know, career. Is there a 13 and 13 stretch in there? Maybe the very, when he very first started. Uh, no, like that's just not the case, Curtis. So if you want to look back at the first two years uh, that were good, like fine, I guess. But like, it, what what about now? What's going on now? Where, which direction is this program going? Uh, someone tweeted out like the USC's stats for the past. Uh, decade and it wasn't I, I just retweeted it it just wasn't very uh it wasn't very positive there's been only two major bulls in the in the p- previous decade now P- that uh Clayton didn't coach the entire decade but he coached half of it uh they're one and one in those bulls there's five minor bulls and usc's two and three only two division championships uh in the in the decade only one conference championship uh you know it's just there was a losing season in there. Uh, they're six and four against UCLA in the decade, three and seven against Notre Dame, and five and seven against uh, Stanford. So uh, only half the time did they finish the season ranked. Uh, only four times in the coaches' poll. So that's not good enough for a decade, and that's a half of a decade that that Clayton was part of the entire decade as a coach, and he was the head coach for half of it. So that that is not good enough curse i'm sorry we're not, it doesn't matter that he won the most in his first two years it just that just doesn't mean anything to me that's a way better answer than i gave curtis but, uh, <laughs> but way to go i mean yeah those are the numbers that matter yeah yeah, yeah i was just uh, i it was someone that follows me that tweeted it out i saw it on the usc hashtag and i just retweeted it and then a lot of people were uh um uh like uh commenting on that I, we also have some Breaking news for you, L.A. foodies. Uh, I just retweeted this. The Pacific Dining Car in Santa Monica is closing for good. It was a 24-hour restaurant. Uh, the L.A. Times food tweeted out that you could find a perfectly cooked, f- cooked filet mignon and blueberry pancakes at 3 a.m. Uh, they opened in 1921. They are now closed. I've only been there a couple of times, but, man, that was a cool place. So, bummer. Thank you for the breaking news, Ryan. Yeah, that's pretty breaking newsy. You know, that happened to Paul's show. I was Have like bracing got... myself. I was like, I thought it was going to be some USC thing, and then it was an LA food thing. No, so, we're yeah. trying to have some fun here because mm-hmm. it's, you yes. know, we're, we're, but that's, that does suck. I hate when you see like LA doesn't have like the kind of history that like Boston has, you know. Uh, but I love the LA history. I love the stuff that goes back, you know, that's 100 years old. That's big for LA, you know. So something that, that was been in LA that long. Is, is pretty crazy that it's going to be going away. Mm-hmm. Shall we continue, Keely, Ryan? Yeah, Keely's just not having it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've never been there, so I have nothing to add, Ryan. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> Dan, do you have anything? Yeah, I haven't been there either. I, I always love the sound of it and the, 
that idea, and I wish I'd have gotten there now. I'm, I feel really, really bad. It, it did sound like like really a cool place. And you don't have as maybe as many. You have more of those than people realize that are you know from the the 20s in LA, which must have been a, a, a just a great great time to uh, to grow up. I was talking to somebody who uh, we all knew at USC who grew up in Culver City, right near the MGM back lot. And how they, when they were kids, they could climb over the fence and get go onto all these great sets where all these great movie musicals, you know, were were filmed and all that. And and how cool that you know that time you know period that was we're talking even in the fifties. Uh, L.A. just has a lot of really cool stuff that you wish you could kind of you know be a part of it because uh, and one of the things that they're all spread out, but. Um, uh, yeah, you wish LA could preserve all that great history because there really is a lot of it. Yeah. We have a question from Rick from La Mirada, who basically is stressing out as a USC fan over Corey Foreman. He wants to know one, is Corey's intention to play at USC, or two, is he just wanting to really experience recruiting? but ultimately knows he has Clemson in his pocket and will go back to Clemson. So he just wants your thoughts on, on Corey Foreman. Hey, hey Rick, make, make sure you check out Gerard's recruiting podcast. Cause we're, we're not going to do as much recruiting stuff here. Um, so Gerard does a great job. He does those every week and uh, get on the peristyle. And if you're not, you can get two months for a buck right now. So just go on there. He'll post his question list and you can go on there and uh, put your question in there for that. Uh, we're not going to talk as much recruiting here, but, Corey Foreman's the number one player of the country. It's still wide open. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen there? Yeah, I think it, it's up to USC. If if they come out of the gate and they come out strong and they, you know, get better and they have that kind of year that you say, oh, that's what USC football used to look like. I think, you know, you got a heck of a shot at him. Um, if not, you know, I don't know where Clemson stands after the uh, Sunday parade of Confederate flags on the back of pickup trucks through downtown Clemson. Uh, not that there is a suburban, you know, Clemson. It's all the same downtown, basically. But uh, if you were a recruit for Clemson and you're sitting there watching that video, uh, you might have a maybe a second thought about it uh, anyway. I think there's a lot of long way to go, but I think mostly it's up to USC. USC is USC. This fall, I think they've got an awfully good shot. Yeah. So last week, Ryan, you talked about how you were over coronavirus. Yeah, it's going to go over <laughs> well, I can tell, yeah. <laughs> Earl of has a rebuttal. He says, Dan and Ryan, last, bo- last week, both of you effectively stated that young people don't risk death from COVID-19 in your conversation about getting USC players back on the practice field again. According to the CDC, that is not true. By their records, 135 people under the age of 24 succumbed to the virus between March 28th and June 6th. Granted, the risk to young people under age 24 is much less compared to older age groups, but nonetheless, they're still at risk, particularly particularly when proper precautions are not in place. I wish I were as optimistic about there being a college football season as you guys are. The lack of a cure or vaccine and the logistical requirements to maintain social distancing for crowds of 25 to 30,000 seem impossible to overcome. At best, if students are on campus, I can see uh, students and the band attending the game as there would be plenty of room to socially distance and it would lend to the overall atmosphere. Parking, concessions, and a myriad of other things never before imagined still have to be figured out. I hope you guys are right. 
but I just don't see it happening yet. Thanks for all you do, Earl in West LA. Yeah, Earl, here's the thing I think you ought to, you ought to understand. You are far more likely to die in a car accident on the way to the game than you are if you're a college student uh, from COVID-19. It's just, yeah, can we guarantee that, you know, put everybody in a bubble? Uh, we can't do that. Can we keep every, you know, the whole world shut down? Now they're finding out they're, you know, the first, uh, you know, research and data that's coming in showing very little transmission at the, uh, at the protest marches and rallies and all of that, uh, which makes you wonder, did they get it right? I mean, did they, was the prescription that was so obvious, stay at home, uh, you know, don't mingle, don't go out there and wear, you know, masks, you know, was all of that correct or, or, you know, should everybody have worn a mask, but maybe not shut down, you know, the economy and cost 40 million people their jobs and trillions taken out of the economy, the wealth of America. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think there's a good chance that they didn't get it exactly right. And uh, so, you know, in that situation, Again, I'm the, the glasses half full guy. I'm the guy that, you know, let's take the optimistic take on this rather than the pessimistic take. If we don't even have any idea whether being pessimistic and overly, you know, safe about it does any good. It, you know, it well may not do any good at all, uh, in, you know, in terms of, of, of keeping people safe. But just the idea that, that you are really far more likely to, to, to catch it, uh, to catch it. You're li- far, far more likely to do your yourself harm driving to the game than you are at the game, uh, you know, when you get there. And, and people are going to have to figure out how do we live with it and how do we do things. I, I was listening to the guy, uh, the president of the largest uh, uh, real estate holding company in, in, the, in America and maybe the world where they have many of these tall buildings and all of that. In like the New York City, and they made the example of the Pan Am Pan Am building in New York. And if you put social distancing in effect, let's say in the elevators, you won't be able to get everybody into their offices. The line will be like miles long out the front door. We can't live like that, okay? It, we just can't live like that. I mean, I don't know if they can open the press box for uh, uh, USC football games if you have to social distance, you know, the elevator. I, I, don't, I don't think you can get enough people. I don't think you got enough time to get everybody into the press box unless you get people coming, you know, four and five hours before kickoff. Uh, so I think we're going to have to adjust and we're going to have to take our best shot and we're going to have to be, I think, fairly optimistic about things. Yeah, and uh, I would say... Yeah, there was a, you know, there's a handful of people that have, I mean, obviously the majority, I think LA County, uh, it was like 93% of people that had pre-existing conditions. I think there's a thing where you kind of have to be smart about, no one knows, we don't know what's going on. I'm over it, not saying I'm going to go out and sneeze on people. I'm just saying like, I'm going to try to live my life and do it safely. And if it's go out for a walk and I'm going for a hike and I'm not going to wear a mask because I'm out in the woods by myself. Like, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not going to, you know, gyms are going to reopen. I'm probably not going to the gym. I'm working out my driveway. Like I'm just going to try to do what I think is common sense as far as not expose myself and expose and expose anyone else. 
Uh, I do deliver my meals on wheels. I try I wear a mask or wear gloves. Uh, you know, I'll do that in those situations. But when they say, okay, you can go to the gym, but they're not opening up like beach volleyball. It just doesn't make any sense to me for some of that stuff. And I feel like you're just making rules for the sake of making rules. So I, you know, young people are not immune. They don't, the coronavirus doesn't bounce off them, but it's just much, much less likely that something's going to happen uh, to someone that's younger than someone that's older. And I think we have to, I know it's probably not PC to take that stuff into consideration, but I think you kind of have to at this point um, if you want to bring back college sports. So we'll we'll see. We're going to know over the next few weeks when players start coming back. The Pac-12 is, I think everybody's back, like we talked about, except uh, the California schools, and they should be back pretty soon. Guys are going to get tested. Guys are going to be asymptomatic. They're going to have it. They're going to be positive. They'll quarantine for a week or whatever it is, and they'll come back. I think that's the situation. Um you know, we don't want to see some college football player or other athlete get sick and die from the coronavirus, you know? So if there is a, a player that has some kind of bad asthma or lung problems, they might have to take extra precautions and not be back and not be back in the regular population. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but I, I just to say like young people are just as likely to catch it that old. That, no, that's not the case. I think it was over 50% of all the cases in LA County were, in, in nursing homes. I mean, it's just, there's obvious, there's real numbers there that you have to look at. Like, where are you much, much more likely to catch it? And where are you much less likely to catch it? So I, I think there was a lot of the stuff they said, um, you know, they, there was just a hard time finding a case where you caught this outside. Uh, so I don't know, is it different to be outside and running around playing tag with your friends versus playing tackle football where you're, you know, breathing heavy on each other and you're the linemen are facing each other. I don't know. There's probably, there's probably a difference there. Um, we just don't know at this point, but I'm not saying that young people can't catch it, but it's much, much less likely that a younger person catches, especially these young athletes than someone that's say in a nursing home, for example. Yeah. And I, I think the across the board solutions didn't do anybody any good. For example, you, you close down all the grade schools, you know, where you're finding almost no, you know, transmission at all. Uh, but they didn't play, uh, pay special attention to the nursing home. And there are some states where up to 70% of the, uh, of the deaths have been, uh, you know, nursing home patients. Uh, and you can't play uh, political favorites. You can't be hypocritical. You can't on Sunday say, oh, that 30,000 crowd was fine uh, that showed up at the Brooklyn courthouse, no problem. And then on Monday, you, uh, um, you know, weld the gates to get, you know, solid of a playground for kids, uh, you know, in Manhattan. You, you can't do that. I'm sorry. You got to, you know, you got to be, you know, fairly consistent and it can't look like you're playing, you know, political favorites. It can't look like you're being hypocritical about who you enforce it uh, against and who you don't and all of that. And, and, and you just got to be smart about it. But, uh, but the fact that, um, Whatever we're showing, we're not showing that there was a lot of increase as a result. Now, it's early yet, and those haven't happened that long ago, but that we're not showing a big increase as a result of of the marches and all of that makes you wonder uh, how we, how that should impact the decisions we make about things like college football. Yeah, there was a, a lot of worry that with all the, you know, there was 99% peaceful protests out there. There were just big groups. Now we saw, if you like TV, there was a lot of masks. Uh, and there were some that weren't, but there were really, you know, there were some really large groups out there. 
and you're worried, well, is that going to spike cases? And then some people say, well, there also are states were also opening up and we have seen some cases go up in certain states. Um, but you know, I don't know if we know enough where, Hey, did a whole bunch of people catch it when they were outside together? They weren't okay. Well, it's probably okay to be outside together. You know, like we just got to kind of learn from whatever is going on. And I don't know, Kelly, Kelly, have you changed your thoughts over the, the week? You're still more of the, well, guys, worried. I mean- if you look at the states where they quote unquote opened up back in Memorial Day, those are the states that are surging in hospitalizations. Arizona, Texas, Florida, Tennessee, those states are cases where are, are having higher numbers of cases, higher numbers of hospitalizations. Arizona, I think, is at ICU limits right now. So to me, looking at the data, it just looks like things are rising. I feel like I've stated this multiple times on this podcast, so I'm not going to rehash it, but I think everyone knows where I stand on this. So I'm just going to not say well, anything. This is a, you got to be careful about the language because people talk about surging or spiking or whatever. And then you look at the, the total numbers and you say, wait a minute, if that were happening in New York, that would be like the greatest improvement in the history of the world or New Jersey or Massachusetts or Connecticut because it's happening in Arizona. Uh, it's a spike or it's a surge. And so and you do have to measure it against the hospital issues. And Arizona probably has, you know, more of an issue there than, than any place. But I'm not sure that you govern all 50 states by what's happening in certain places in Arizona. I mean, it's just there seems to be a storyline that people are trying to push. And I think we have to be resistant and 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 read, uh, you know, think for ourselves, and don't let people kind of, you know, use words like spiking or surging or whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, as much as that was supposedly happening over the weekend, we had the fewest deaths in the U.S. Uh, so far, and you know, since the surge, since it really hit last Sunday, or yes, two days ago. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And don't let people push you one way or the other. Even, you know, if, if I'm trying to push you one direction and, and Keely sees it another way, make up your own mind. Read as much about it as you can and, and don't let people kind of stampede you in one direction or the other. Yeah, Keely, I get that sense too where it's like the people that are, you know, there's going to be people that are like, no, this is the worst thing ever. Um if they, they're looking for any kind of data, like, see, see, look, that happened. See that I told you. And then there's other people who are like, well, overall deaths are dead. Like there's going to be people that are looking for like kind of the bright light. And there's people that are looking for why it's still darkness. And I feel like you don't get the real story. Like it just depends who you talk to. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, with any data set, you can pick and choose what you want out of it and n- make your own narrative. Uh, I I don't know. I'm, <laughs> to be honest, I'm, well, I like I, to put you on the spot. I, this is I, mean, I will I mean, say this. Having to talk about the numbers, this. That you, the numbers you don't see in many of those stories or in those headlines are uh, they're doing way more testing, which is going to increase the numbers of positive tests. But the numbers are a smaller percentage of those being tested. So you don't hear that the percentage of positive tests is going down. Or, you know, for a long time we heard, we don't have enough tests, we don't have enough tests. Now we hear, we don't hear about the number of tests because we got more than we need. Uh, And so there are some agenda-driven ways of reporting that story. And I just think we ought to be smart, 
consumers of news media so that we understand what's going on. If you read a story and it doesn't tell you that percentages are going down of positive tests or that the number of tests are way up, uh, you're probably not getting the whole story. Yeah. Real on the side note, I know Keely loves talking about this stuff. Um, she just doesn't want us to get us in trouble. She She's looking over us because we could say yes. something that's going to be super offensive. We're trying not to do that. Just trying to give you our opinions. Um, but I got tested twice recently, and both times they, the sample wasn't good enough. So there's the drive through I don't know if I talked about this last wow. week. No, I didn't know that. There's no. a drive through place uh, real, real close to my house. There's, like, not a line. It takes, like, five minutes. Like, boom, you're in there. The, the hard part is you do have to stick this swab the back of your nose and they say do like a 10 second swirl on each nostril which i did you put it in a little um vial that has some liquid in it you break off the swab because it's a long swab so you break off half of it and you you uh tighten the vial you know you close it up the the vial uh so it has your swab and the liquid in it you put it in a little baggie that ziplocs and they have a little bucket there you just throw in the bucket and you're off and it's pretty simple well the first time i get my an email back pretty quickly, like a day later, and it said that the, uh, you know, the sample, something was wrong with the sample. So I, I reschedule for yesterday and I go again. And this time, like I really tried to dig it in there to the point where I had to sneeze in my car. Cause it was like really stuck up the back of my nose. I'm like, all right. And I, I did it for longer than 10 seconds and I put the dang thing in the vial and, and made sure it was tightly sealed and put it in the, in the baggie and gave it to them. And I got an email back uh, this morning saying, that, again, the same thing, that the, the sample, there's something wrong with the sample. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, like, I don't know what to do at this point. Like, they, they only want you to roll your window down a lot. I rolled down a little bit, and they give me the stuff. But once I was putting it in there, he's like, roll up your window. Because then I started, you know, I started to sneeze after. And they're wearing, like, full garb with the mask and the shield and everything. But, um, you know, so I'm, like, sneezing into my arm in my car as I'm, like, putting the swab up my nose. But so I've, I've done it twice now and, and have a, I got a result when they did a mouth swab like uh, a couple of months ago, but I've been trying to do one recently and I still haven't got a result yet. So I don't know. I don't know if you guys got tested, but if you had that uh, experience yet. Uh, no, I haven't. And I wouldn't trust myself to do that self-administrate, you know, the, the test uh, that is difficult for, you know, health professionals to administer that one. So <clears throat> I'm not sure. Uh, you know, the whole testing thing, I don't know what I think about it. I know, where was it? Uh, uh, a new group came into, what's army base was it? Like 800 new, uh, you know, soldiers, and they tested them all. Uh, this was, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And the first round, like eight tested positive. And 10 days later, after they, you know, you know they quarantined the, the positive ones, and then the, all the ones that had negative tests, they basically... Uh, you know, turn them loose and said, you know, we're going to do all the things you do in basic training. And they come back and test them after 10 days and 142 of them test positive. I don't know. Is that a bad test? Is that what is that? I don't I don't think we know the whole story behind all the tests. And I think that's going to actually be a real uh, interesting issue is do all the schools in the Pac-12 use the same exacting, you know, exact protocol? Do they have the same equipment? Uh, you know, how many of them are going to be self-administered? I don't, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Uh, uh, how's that all going to work? 
I think we're going to find out maybe as we go along. But, you know, if teams are testing uh, players, you know, twice a week and the road team tests the players Friday before they take off, that's a big deal. That might be the most important thing that happens all week for any team. And um, getting that testing right is going to be a really big deal. Yeah, just to be clear, I don't have any symptoms or anything. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the best shape of my life probably. I'm very healthy, doing a lot of hiking, doing a lot of stuff. But I do deliver meals on wheels, so I wanted to get tested just to, you know, just to try to be safe. So not a, uh, I wasn't sick. That was why I wasn't to go get tested. But I don't know, Keely, you've been tested yet? You haven't gone either, huh? I have not been tested. No, All I right. haven't tried it. I mean, I think L.A. was the first major city that had enough testing for everybody. It was the first one that made it available and all that. And one of the problems, I think, in the last couple of weeks is they don't have enough people getting tested for the testing capacity. It's, you know, everybody's not not choosing to, you know, to be tested. But uh, it's not for uh, lack of uh, ability to test people anymore. Certainly not in L.A. Yeah, when they, when uh, Eric Garcetti, the mayor, announced free testing in L.A., I'm like, I'll go. So I just I signed up that day. <laughs> uh, but that was like six weeks ago, two months ago. And now I've, they, there's one that's closer to my house now. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll really do it now. Uh, but now I got to schedule it again and then ask the guy like, look, dude, I've stuck this thing way up my nose. What do I got to do? Um, all right. Well, that was kind of big sidetrack. But Keely, I think we avoided any kind of, you know, huge blowback. That's good, right? We're, okay. Are we happy? Are you happy? Yeah, I just keep pushing the envelope. I just push the envelope for Keely just so she gets a little uncomfortable as she's reading these things. Oh, so man. Yeah. What are they going to say next? I just stay quiet. That's all I'm going to say. I have not stated my full opinions, but for the sake of getting this pod on the road, keeping it on track. Uh, uh, we, have, we have one final question, actually. I know we're probably running long, but do you want me to go for it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, it's from Dan Class of 1962, who says, Hi, Ryan, Dan, and Keeley. Ryan, you have stated that the next USC coach should be a national championship caliber coach. Be careful what you ask for. USC tried that in the past by bringing John Robinson, a national championship coach, back for a second stint in the 1990s. Coach Robinson did win a Cotton Bowl before it was a playoff bowl and a Rose Bowl with Keyshawn Johnson. However, he was let go one year later, and USC hired Paul Hackett. Coaching is an, is an experienced young person's game. The Bill Snyders of the coaching world are very, very rare. The problem with wanting someone who has won a national championship, other than Urban Meyer, who tends to run out of energy with medical issues, uh, there's only Dabo Sweeney, Coach O, and Saban in that category recently. So that leaves the question, who would you hire realistically at USC who has a national championship credential? Stay safe and well and fight on and win. Dan, class of 1962. Um, I think the other guy they put in there is Bob Stoops. Uh, uh, who's sort of retired and then came back to uh, coaching the XFL or whatever. So he's one other uh, national championship coach that's, that's out there uh, and has, you know, at times been mentioned. But, uh, yeah, there aren't, a, there aren't a whole lot of them. I mean, you're, you're talking about you want a national champion uh, capable coach, you know, a guy that can handle, handle it at that level. And, uh, you know, how many people thought, you know, Coach O was that guy? Well, I mean, a lot of times you don't know who that guy is until he's that guy. You didn't know Pete Carroll was that guy until he proved that he was that guy. Um, so, you know, Dabo Swinney had a, uh, you know, he didn't have a great uh, uh, start at, uh, at Clemson. I mean, it wasn't as bad as John McKay's at USC, but, uh, but he, you know, I mean, Sure, Alabama went out 
and got Bear Bryant to come back home after, you know, he'd won almost national championships at Kentucky when they beat Oklahoma in the Sugar Bowl, uh, when they were on their national championship run, and he'd been at Texas A&M. So, yeah, if you've got a guy like that who's out there and you're Alabama, or you can go get Nick Saban, uh, you, you can do that. I don't think USC can probably ever do that kind of thing. Uh, although, you know, if the Urban Meyer thing uh, would ever happen, then USC would have done done that uh, same thing that Alabama has done. But uh, but yeah, then you got to, you know, do you, do you go with a P.J. Fleck? Do you say uh, Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, who's kept him in the top 25 and is close to, you know, Mike Bone and, and Brandon Sosna? Is he that guy ready to, to make that step up? Um, uh, I think that's where you would end up going for that, you know, that guy that, you know, P.J. Fleck obviously has done it. Uh, going from, you know, Western Michigan to uh, uh, to Minnesota to having them in the mix uh, now, that's hard to do at Minnesota. So, uh, so you would be looking at those guys, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's where Dan, you got to start there. And USC is not even like they wouldn't even think about that. So you got to go there, and you got to look at Urban Meyer or Bob Stoops, uh, you're, anyone with championship experience. Like you're not going to get. Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney, that's fine. But you have to look at the the what you got available. And then the people that are on that track, not people that are so unproven that you have no idea what they could do and you just hope that they it works out because they have ties to USC. Like, no, you get rid of that stuff. You get people that have either proven themselves by actually winning a championship or other programs look like look at that, pro, that, that coach and go, yeah, that guy can win a national championship. That's what USC needs to bring in, not – uh, your offensive coordinator that ne- has never been a head coach before, just but he's there and everyone likes him, so let's hire him. Like that, you got to get away from that stuff. Hire proven winners. That's what you got to do, hundred percent. And you got to give uh, Oklahoma credit. For example, they decided Lincoln Riley had what it took as the you know offensive coordinator at Oklahoma to to step in for Bob Stoops, and that was you know seamless. Uh, does that always happen? Most of the time, it doesn't happen. But yeah. if you do have that opportunity, uh, you can take it. But again, you have to be have the right people making that call and making it for all the right reasons, not for reasons kind of extraneous to can this guy win a national championship for us? Uh, yeah. You and, need and, be- better reasons. And the biggest difference there, Dan, and for everyone, people say that, well, you hired this guy. Who was who Lincoln Riley working for? A national championship winning coach. He wasn't working for Lane Kiffin or Steve Sarkeesian. He was working for a national championship winning coach. And he was one of the best, if not the best, position coach, offensive coordinator in the country. Like, he was working for a championship guy, and he was performing at a championship level, and they gave him an opportunity to stay in the program. That makes much more sense than working for a mediocre coach having mediocre results and then making him the head coach. If that, you know, there's just no parallel. There's no comparison there. Yeah. And the other, you know, uh, Annette Ordron, he had been that at USC. Okay. He had the, you know, the, the misfortunes that happened to him at, at Ole Miss and he learned from him whether, you know, and then he was back at, back, back at LSU and, you know, the opportunity came his way and the LSU athletic director decided, you know, I think he's got the right stuff for this program and he obviously did uh but uh, 
you know, each each one of those calls, I think, has to be completely separate, standing on its own, you know, set of facts and and all your judgments about the person himself and and what the needs of the program are. And, um, you know, that's uh, that's why Ed works so well at an LSU where you have the opportunity to go with his strong suit. Well, a couple of them recruiting and, you know, toughness and, 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 you know, hard work and all of that, that can pay off. Uh, but they also had to have the ability to get that right quarterback and then finally get to the right offensive coordinator. And, and all those things have to be, you know, have to play into how do you do that? And you can't be satisfied with uh, where you are, who you are, or that good things are just going to happen because you're USC, for example. You have to act like you're, you know, the lowliest of the power five schools and that you got to outwork everybody. And uh, that we haven't seen until, you know, this with this new group of coaches, we're seeing it again. And um, that's the attitude you got to have. And what coach uh, can lead you, uh, you know, to that place? And Ed will outwork anybody, uh, for example. And he took advantage of all his uh, all the positive things that LSU's program uh, but then he still had to get, you know, that offensive coordinator and that had to go to throw the ball and figure out, you know, that's how you have to play football. And, uh, get, you know, Ed gets all the credit in the world for doing that. But uh, again, he had some of those characteristics that Ryan said you have to have. He, you know, grew up in a national championship program at USC. Keely, we survived, I think. We did it. No more you questions. Did. All right. Well, good stuff. Uh, maybe we rambled a little bit, but that's what we do here. It's off season. You know, what are we going to do? Um, we, this is what we got to do, right? This is us. Uh, this is what we do. We talk about things and we try to engage our listeners. We do appreciate all of the questions and I appreciate Dan and Keely coming on and joining us. You guys got anything else or should we get out of here? Uh, we are just call us the ramblers, by the way. And why is that important? Because that was the Notre Dame nickname before they became the fighting Irish in the, in the twenties when it was politically uh, correct enough to be calling somebody the fighting Irish. But uh, they were the, uh, before Newt Rockney got there, they were the Notre Dame ramblers because they wow. played games all over the country. Oh, they had to go everywhere. Nice. They had to go everywhere. Yeah. All righty. Well, that's going to wrap it up. Uh, I'm your host, Ron Abraham. That's Keely, Yor, and Dan Weber. We do appreciate you listening to our little show, the Parastyle Podcast. Hope you guys are all staying safe, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices, every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. The wait is over. 
The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the shed? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes May 10th. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.